Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we've got a founder from up the road in the Durham Triangle area joining the podcast, Steve Wozinski. Um, Steve is the co-founder of BN Nano, um, which is a nanomaterials company that has been around for the last couple years. And we've all heard the opportunities that are out there with nanomaterials and, and, and what they can do to, to change the world that we currently live in. And Steve's got a awesome application um, in purifying and cleaning um, PFAS, from um, from water, um, which we'll certainly dive into, and the technology actually didn't start there. The technology actually started in an opportunity to strengthen existing materials. So, really cool interview talking with Steve about how they came across the idea, what their backgrounds are, how they came together, how they got started, um, and how they are thinking about multiple business lines down the road so really cool concept thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to get to know steve talk a little bit more about nanomaterials talk a little bit more about um you know cleaning water supplies and whatnot so really good interview hope you enjoyed today's edition of the charlotte angel connection steve welcome to the show so excited to have you on today we're gonna have ourselves a fun little time here this morning it's a pleasure being here thank you for the opportunity thank you yeah, no. So, um, so Steve, as you know, uh, we like to get started here with just kind of a softball question. Get the get the juices, the creative juices flowing a little bit. So, if you could do us a favor and and give the audience a little little sixty ninety second or longer, if you choose, background on yourself and the company. Sure. So, I'm I'm from North Carolina. You know, I, I did my my undergrad college at NC State got a, a bachelor's in material science and engineering. When I graduated, I had more questions than when I started. So I went back to grad school and I ended up actually with a chemistry degree from Clemson University, a master's in chemistry. And then from there, you know, I went, I went to work and I was pretty fortunate that I've had some, some pretty interesting jobs. The, the first opportunity I had, I went out to the West Coast and started making solar cells for satellites. And uh, it's kind of neat. I've got some um, some things that I actually had my hands on that you know have pretty much left the solar system by now, and have have been parts of some pretty pretty exciting science experiments and gathering a lot of data. Uh, came back to the East Coast and started working for a company at the time. It was called Cree Research. It was before they transitioned to just Cree, and was part of the team that helped them you know commercialize some of those those LED technologies. And then for some reason, I got I got bored with thin films in two dimensions. And I, I left Cree and started working on micro and nano machines. So I wanted to make things that, you know, actually moved. And th- these are devices that are smaller than the width of a human hair, but they actually move. Uh, they're really the, the forefront of the, the internet of things sensors. And I worked for, you know, a company called Chronos uh, Integrated Microsystems, which was a pretty well-known spin out of a group called MCNC. 
Uh, and then that transitioned over the years and became a company called MEMSCAP. And I ended up being the, you know, the president and general manager of that MEMS business unit. And during that time, they also sent me back to school. So I got an MBA from NC State. And um, it was there where, you know, I realized that even though, you know, science and technology is tough, dealing with people, um, you know, is even more of a challenge. And over the years with the people that we knew, we, we wanted to take on an opportunity of starting a business on our own. And then in 2016, along with my business partner, we formed the, the company BN Nano, which is a, it's a nanomaterials company. And we, we formed that from the perspective of process engineers who wanted to grow a business. So um, it had been our belief that nanotechnology had overpromised and underdelivered. And we thought we had a fundamental understanding of why all the way down to the material science of things. And uh, when we you know, had a, a good idea of what we wanted to make, a new type of nanotube, we had an idea of how to do it. We were fortunate that we, we knew some angels, angel investors that we had worked with in the past, and they gave us some seed money to get started. And in uh, January 1 of 2017, we moved into our manufacturing facility in Burlington, North Carolina. And, uh, we, you know, we've been running, we've been uh, producing things ever since. So it's been a, yeah. it's been a pretty exciting ride. I've, I've been fortunate to be part of successes and failures and, you know, learned a lot along the way. Yeah, no. So a lot to unravel there. Um, so let's, um, as much as I'd love to go back and talk about the satellite uh, uh, stuff that's left the solar system. We're gonna we're gonna focus a little bit more on the on the more recent stuff because I think that's also um, and technically speaking more interesting to me. So, sure. um, so 2016, you got the idea with your business partner to create BN Nano, um, and around the nano um, nanotechnology space, right? Nanomaterials, nanotechnology yes. space. Um, what um, did you jump ship right at um, on January 1st, 2017? Did you um, were you kind of one foot in old company, one foot in new company? Talk a little bit about the um, the light bulb moment that went off for you and then how you navigated that world. Because so many so many folks don't come straight out at 22 and start a company. Right. They're they're in yeah. someplace else and they have their idea and they're they're trying to figure out, well, how do I get to my idea, right? But they're trying to balance both sides of that life. So walk us a little bit through about how you managed through that. Yeah, so uh, my career had been spent as a process engineer, and all that really means is we made things. And, and we were a part of making things like the advanced solar cells and advanced LEDs and, and micro and nano machines. And when you make those things, you typically have to use new Legos in the Lego box, things that aren't really well understood yet or, or well developed. And as we were making these different products and developing these technologies in our mind, we would theorize, I need a Lego piece that does this, that has these properties. And so you, you spend a lot of time, you know, looking at contemporary research, reading papers, reading articles, trying to understand if, if what you have imagined exists. And it, it turns out that what we imagined was something that was um, available on a very small scale. Very few people could make it, uh, but no one could commercialize it. And it, it was a boron nitride based material. It was a boron nitride nanomaterial. And it, it 
the, the specific properties that we needed. We needed it to block electricity, but conduct heat. And we needed it to survive at very high temperatures. And that is something that is desired for things like electronics and um, you know other activities. But it just, it wasn't there. So that caught our eye probably 2014 is when uh, my business partner, Jason Taylor and I, you know, just started talking about things at lunches, over coffees, walking around parking lots, at our kids' swim meets, you know, those kind of things. And, and we got to the point where we kept talking about this one thing and all the crazy things we could do with it. And then we we advanced that conversation to, well, do we think we could make it? And then what we thought was, well, look at what we make now. Some of the really complex materials and products that we've helped develop and produce. And all this is, is just a boron and a nitrogen atom combined in a special way. How hard can that possibly be? So we very naively thought this is something that, you know, we could very easily figure out how to do. To take that to, you know, a couple of years later, get into 2016. Um, it took us that amount of time to get to the point where we, we thought we knew what we were doing and we thought we would knew how we would produce this. And then it was at that time, then we, you know, approached um, someone that we had worked with who truly is a visionary. Uh, his name's Jerry Nagley, and he is, uh, you know, one of the original inventors of the LED light bulb. And we had worked with him at Cree, and he he has the ability to take the the abstract idea of what this material is and immediately leap to what we could possibly do with it. So, um, you know, on a handshake, he helped us start a company, gave us the seed money the seed money to get going. So it, it was a little bit of one foot in and one foot out, if you want to call it that way, but it was a, um, it was a new business that had some other things happening in the background and it just made sense for us to, you know, make the decision. We either going to do it or we're not. And uh, we did take the risk, right? We did, we, we later in our careers, maybe mid-level careers, you know, we have houses, we have families, we have kids. Uh, but we took the risk. We quit our jobs, and we started the company. Uh, so you the, you jump you jump two feet in on January first, two thousand seventeen. Yes, we did, and um, it was the easiest and the hardest decision at the same time. I mean, it was. Um, you know, there were and at the beginning there were certainly times when we had to scratch our heads and think, you know, holy crap, what do we really do here? But um, you know, once we were able to make the material that we that we envisioned. And then when we were able to make those fundamental materials changes and see that our idea actually worked, it was pretty incredible. And um, to not get too technical, but if you think about a nanotube, one of the ways you can envision that is something like a drinking straw. And a drinking straw is you know, smooth and flat. And if you're adding it to something to try to make it stronger, imagine stabbing like a piece of clay with that drinking straw and you can push it in and pull it out very easily. What we wanted to do is make something that looked more like a piece of rock candy so that it had all these jagged edges on it. So if you stuck that into the clay, it's not going to pull out. Mm -hmm. And then if you had something like a rock candy, it's also not going to want to stick together. And just that small change on that surface is what makes our material easier to use and more effective. And that was how we designed it from the beginning. And then actually being able to take a design and do what you thought you were going to do and have it work the way that you hoped it would is actually, you know, it's pretty incredible and it doesn't happen that often. Now, were y'all able, were y'all able to figure all that out in 2016, Steve, or did y'all, 
only with the seed money were y'all able to figure out how it all needed to come together. Like how how far along was the product development before before you walked out the door? So in 2016, it, it took us a few months to where we could produce the that drinking straw version of the nanotube. So the our first goal was can we just make that nanomaterial in general? And, and so 20, 2017 is probably you know the the vast majority, at least up until probably November, is that's what we worked on. And then once we once we were able to, I don't want to say perfect that, but once we were able to reproduce reproduce that, that's when we sat down and really started to try to develop that that surface change, having that irregular surface. And it was it was around January or February of 2018 that we we were able to reproduce that enough and have enough information of how we did it that we could actually apply for the patent to cover. Um, that morphology or that shape. Okay. So it was probably, you know, almost a year and a half to get from the conception of the idea on paper to actually having this new material that we could produce. Okay. So you jumped ship well before the uh, proof that you could produce it. Oh yeah. We, all we had was a theoretical idea of what type of equipment we would use and how we would make it. And, and our goal from the beginning was to invent as little as possible so what we did is we took equipment that was used for something else totally and repurposed it just to try to do it a little bit quicker and a little bit faster. But yeah, when we quit our jobs, we had never even turned on the power to our factory. Okay. That's awesome. Um, Sometimes, <laughs> it's, it's retrospect it is at the time. I don't know that I would have yeah. used that word, but yeah. It's, it's awesome six years later. How's that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so um takes you a year and a half to to get to a point where you know you can produce it um by this point in time do you know that you can mass produce it yeah um, i would say middle of 2018 we were very confident we could mass produce it okay and um it was it was actually late 2017 that we even started you know selling to selectively selling to to different groups the first company or the first organization that we ever sold anything to was air force research labs and um that came about through a, a personal connection through one of the local universities that we work with. So it was a, you know, they reached out to us to see if, you know, we could really produce the thing that people have been looking for. And um, it was shortly after that, that, you know, we started to tell the world because we did for the first 18 months or so, we really didn't tell anybody what we were doing. We wanted to, we've been very, careful and one of the philosophical things that we believe is that there's things that we believe there's things that we think and there's things that we know when we started the company we believed we could do this um, you know after about a year we thought we could because ha we had more data it wasn't until we could reproduce this and we knew with absolution that we can make this repeatedly that we wanted to start telling people the last thing that we wanted to do because we've experienced this from the other side is to tell people uh, we can we can sell this to you and it will work and then have them place an order and have to, at that point to figure out, well, can we really do it? Um, so we were quite cognizant of that. So it was probably, you know, 18 months before we were comfortable enough to tell the world that here we are. Okay. Um, but, but you started having conversations with folks about, hey, we're trying to do this. Um, and that started to lead to some sales as you were able to then go back and say, hey, we're no longer trying to do this. We actually are doing this. And 
these are some practical applications that we think it might fit within your wheelhouse. Is that right? Yeah. And, and where we are located, we're located in Burlington, North Carolina, which is not far from uh, it's a it's a collaboration between North Carolina A&T and the University of Greensboro. They have the Joint School of Nanoscience and Nanoengineering. And that is it's a it's an organization that followed sort of what the, the nano center and the nano facilities in Albany, New York did. And it's a way for small companies to join this group and be able to use their equipment and the resources on campus. So um, from day one, we joined there. So we were we were often on the campus collaborating or at least, you know, communicating with professors and students about what we're doing. And that's where the first seeds got planted. And as some of those students graduated and moved on, one of them went to AFRL and, you know, knew some folks there. So when they when they came up with, well, we what we really need is a boron nitride nanotube. And he said, I remember this small company right by the school where we were. Let's contact them. So that's really where it all started. And um, it starts, even though we're technical, like I said, it, it does start with those relationships with those people. We took the time to, you know, involve other people around us to give them at least information about what we're doing and to listen to the things that they were researching in and doing so that we understood if it was something that we could support or help or improve. And that's really where that, if you want to call that biz dev or some of that marketing actually started. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So, oh man. So we, you've got a product um, that, you know, you can you know, produce at um, a great enough volume to, to drive sales. Um, how, how hard is it to sell something like this, Steve? I mean, it's a, um, it's a broad use case, I think, right? Is applicable in a lot of different ways. Um, yeah. And it's challenging. It, it, it's hard. Yeah. So what, what nanomaterials are is they don't really do anything on their own. Um, you add them to other things to make those other things better. And I think, I think it was 3M years ago, they had a, a marketing campaign. And I think it was something like, you know, we don't make the things that you buy, but we make the things that you buy better. And that, that is what this material does. And what we mean by that is if you add some of our material to aluminum, uh, we can double the strength of different aluminum alloys. If we add our material to plastics or polymers, we can make those plastics and polymers behave more like metals. Um, so we can add it to ceramics and other materials to do things that uh, you really couldn't do before. It can make things uh, protected against fire, against corrosion and other things. So what we have to do to sell this is you have to find companies and organizations that have a product that is sufficient, but maybe not perfect for their applications. And it's a little harder than that even because nanomaterials are hard to use. So you also have to find an organization or a group of people that are comfortable handling nanomaterials to mix things in. Ultimately, if you're adding something to a product that already exists, that typically means you're going to add a little bit of cost. So you also have to be able to articulate to them, yeah, your product might cost a little bit more, but it opens up so many additional capabilities that you're either going to save money or you're going to be able to do more. Um, with something like the aluminum, it's easy because to have that conversation, because if we can double the strength of aluminum, then you can use half as much. 
So if that translates to say a rocket, then you can have a rocket that weighs half as much, which means it costs less to, to lift off, or we could have more payload on there. So it's a, it's a challenging conversation requires finding the right people. And when we started the company, we naively believed that just having the material would be enough. And then what we quickly found out, and a lot of that had to even do with, with uh, when COVID came about, was what we really need to do is go ahead and mix our nanomaterials into different products so that we could give that to our customers and they don't have to know anything about nanotechnology or do anything different. They just get the benefit for what it does. What's the what's the sales cycle like? I mean, it's got to, I mean, gosh knows for you, it has to seem like it takes decades for a sales cycle, right? But, um, and in some regards, that's probably going to end up being the case. Um, yep. So it's it's different depending on what you're, where you're selling it into. So, you know, one of the, I, the easiest sale or the shortest sales cycle for us would be things or organizations like, like universities or government labs. So those types of customers will think that they need it and they'll buy it right away, but they buy you know limited quantities, just a little bit of, enough to do their research. Um, that sales cycle is, is short, could be a couple of weeks. When you start talking to companies that are doing creative things, um, like one of the companies we work with is out of Texas. Uh, their name is True Velocity and they're, they're working on next generation ammunition. So they're taking the brass out of the cartridge and replacing it with a polymer composite. For someone like that, it could be six months or to a year because they have to be educated on what our materials will do for them. They have to do some modeling to make sure that we're not going to cause unforeseen problems. Then they have to do you know very small tests to see if it works before they can start even getting into the qualification processes. So it's a challenge. Um, one of the obvious areas where we can have a lot of benefit are things like aerospace because we can make things lighter. But when you start talking about aerospace, it doesn't matter what you sell into them. The qualification times are very, very long. So, uh, you know, there's challenges and then you have to balance that between things that take a long time to qualify and things that take a shorter time, like textiles or, you know, things like 3D printing, where you can make something immediately test it and get it almost instant feedback. So it really is. It's a it's a it's a blend of we want to have customers with short sales cycles and customers with longer because along that spectrum, there's also different opportunities in the short term and the long term. And you got to balance that out. How do you handle that? So you've got a product that you know works. Um, it's a game changing technology and product. And you're sitting, you know, theoretically or um, or actually across the table from somebody that says, sounds good, but um, give us two years, right? Like, I mean, you know, you know, it does what it needs to do, um, but they have to delay it because of regulatory pressures or anything. I mean, how do you... I mean, that's got to be highly frustrating, right? Or I guess maybe by now, five years in, you're just kind of accustomed to it. But um... oh, it's frustrating. And the the really frustrating ones are when you find someone and they say, "We've tested it; it works great." 
we're ready to do it. But we just built this factory that we in, you know, in, invested tens of millions of dollars in for this one product line. Even though you can improve that product line, we need to just run that factory for five or six years to get our money back. So we'll talk to you then. You know, that's the that's the ones that are really frustrating. The the ones that say, give me a year or two, those are kind of fun because what you can say to them is, well, how can I, what testing, what data, what can I do to prove to you that it works? You know, how can I assist you? And ultimately what happens is when we go through those steps, we learn so much more about what our material can do that we're not only helping that one customer, but we are potentially coming up with new product lines. And um, that's exactly what we did with the with the customer in Texas. You know, they do injection molding. So we had to compound our material into polymers that were ultimately going to be injection molded. And the way that you do that is you'll extrude it as something that kind of looks like weed eater line. And then you chop it up into little pieces. And then as we're doing this, you know, one of our guys had this idea, hey, that weed eater line is actually what people 3D print with. So all this work we're doing for this injection molding, we can just piggyback on top of that. And maybe we have a brand new product line. And that's actually how that came about. So it's sort of those synergies when you're working with folks, it's the good unintended consequences or un unintended results that help when you, when you are not frustrated with those responses and those relationships, but you use them to try to learn things and figure out, you know, how can we improve as we're trying to help our customers? Yeah. So you've got this game changing technology in so many different regards with long lead times um, and you're not Bill Gates, um, yep. right? So how as a company do y'all manage sales, profitability, cost, fork? Like how do you make sure that you're here long enough to realize the sale that you just made? So the way that we've uh, the way that we've addressed that is we are what we like to say 100% needs focused. Um, there's a lot of things that we want, um, you know, but we don't do them because we don't have to right now. And we are we're a very humble company, right? If you if you drove by our facility, you don't you're not going to see any signs. Um, you know, we're in an old textile mill. It, it doesn't look like much. Um, when you go inside the facility, what we like to tell people that visit is we, we tell them you're about to be remarkably underwhelmed when you see um, the amount of resources that we have in our laboratories and our factory. But when you see the results that we put through, it's pretty amazing. Um, we're very frugal. We're very small. And, you know, we we all believe in this enough where we we've we've taken a hit on, you know, like things like salaries. Now, you know, we, we all could, you know, to a person could make significantly more working for other people, but we believe in it enough. And the way that we've organized the company, everyone that works for us has ownership. You know, everyone that works for us will benefit and we are patient and we're, we're just very cognizant of, you know, low burn rates. Let's treat it like it's all, you know, it's our family almost, you know, we're going to do what we need to do. We're going to take care of each other, but we're not going to. You know, we're not going to splurge right now. We're across the street from a used um, office equipment company. Um, there were times when we were going to have a meeting and we're like, well, we only have four chairs, you know, early on. So, you know, we got to walk across the street and, and buy some chairs and carry them back. And that's kind of the way we've been. It's uh, beneficial. And then being able to partner with the Joint School of Nanoscience and Nanoengineering, 
at A&T and UNC Greensboro, what that means is we don't have to spend a penny on analytical equipment. We can go to their laboratories and use them. So we've been very creative, very cautious, and only, you know, do what we need. Um, the, um, the ownership for employees, was that a early on decision that you knew you couldn't afford competitive salaries, so you needed that enticement to bring some folks on board? Um, or was the decision there something else? It was a little bit of that, but, you know, we, you know, as a lot of the things that we've done, um, you know, as process engineers, the guys in the lab actually making things, you know, they're the, the engineers aren't always the ones that are, you know, the high people may not realize this, but, you know, the engineers typically aren't the ones that are compensated the highest and, but they, they do a lot of work. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to make sure that anyone that came in and contributed to the success of the company was a part of that. And so it was certainly, you know, at the beginning, you know, we can't pay you big salaries and we can give you some shares and some options and things, but it's just a philosophy, you know, that that's just what we believe. If you've, if you have helped us, we want to make sure that we help you. We want to always be more than a job for people. We want to teach you, um, improve you, help you learn, help, help find out what you're interested in, what do you want to do and see if we can tailor your activities while you're working to do that. But it's just a, it's a philosophical thing that we believe in, I think, and, and to a person. Um, we've never had anybody leave. It, uh, you know, um, the, the people that have joined the company are still with us. And we have a lot of people, you know, working behind the scenes that were, you know, early investors that are also, you know, advisors and contributors. So we've been, we've been fortunate to have uh, really good people around us. How many folks do you have on the team now, Steve? We have uh, what I'd call full-time, seven people full-time. Uh, we've yep. got about 12 people, you know, working every day. And then we have a, a few other people that are doing um, a little bit of business development sort of on a, you know, a contract type of role. And then certainly some advisors and some consultants that we work with. Okay. Um, so how many applications are there for it? part of the challenge that we have is it can almost sound like a snake oil, if you want to call it that, because there's so many applications. Um, you use our material to really fundamentally do two things. You either make things stronger and lighter, or you can improve the way they move heat. So when you start talking about making things stronger and lighter, there's a whole industry or whole market called lightweighting. So if you can imagine anything that travels or anything that is carried or anything that carries things, if you can make that stronger and lighter, it works better and it's cheaper and easier to use. So that can be a plastic, that can be a metal, that can be a ceramic. And um, it's really unlimited with what you what you think about. If you can imagine any like drones that are, you know, unmanned vehicles, even if they are, you know, gas powered or if they're battery powered, the lighter they are, the faster they go or the more things that they can carry. We do a lot of work for, you know, DOD for, for war fighters, anything that can make them lighter or stronger, there's a benefit. So it's a, it's a whole host of, of opportunities there. And then to make things move heat better. Now you're getting into electronics. Um, everybody knows if you're on your cell phone or if you're doing a video call, they get hot, right? Um, when they get hot, it damages them. So they need, we need to find ways to cool things better. And that that's an opportunity. It goes into electric vehicles. It goes into electric grids, things like 
uh, you know, wind farms, anything that moves, anything that has friction also produces heat. So we can help improve those things. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty wide area of, of applications. And then just fundamentally, because of what our materials do, you can get into things that we've really, like we're really focused on now is you can use our material to clean water and to remove things from water that typically have been challenging. Um, but it's boron nitride and it's not a very well-known kind of material that people think about, but it, but it's an amazing combination of two very abundant elements. Boron and nitrogen are two of the most abundant elements on the planet when you put them together, it does some pretty amazing things. So you mentioned it. So let's dive into it for a second. Um, it has the ability to clean water in ways that other things that we currently use cannot. How did you stumble upon that as a concept? So there is a lot of research for really decades that talk about boron nitride materials, being able to take things out of water, like heavy metals, um, organic contaminants and other things. And then one of the properties of nanomaterials is they have a, a massive, amount, massive amount of surface area. And when you are making things like filters or trying to remove contaminants, the more surface area that you have, the better they're going to work. So early on, we knew that we wanted to experiment with, with water purification. And we, we're in an old textile mill in Burlington, North Carolina. So one of the first things that we wanted to do just in our lab is can we can we remove textile dye? Not a huge problem in the US anymore, but around the world it certainly is. So we were able to do some pretty simple experiments and it was kind of remarkable. You could actually, you could have a beaker of water contaminated with dye and you could put some of our material in it and you could physically watch the, the color change go from the water into the the powder if you want to call that and see the all of that color get absorbed by that powder and we thought that was pretty cool so the next thing we did is we took uh we went and got some motor oil and some gasoline and poured that in a beaker and that was really interesting and we actually have videos of these on our on our website you can actually watch it suck it up like a sponge and you know that was that was pretty cool and then part of these experiments when we were working with um, another university very close to us is Elon and what professor from Elon, who was a four EPA chemist, he said, if you guys could do oil and gas and dyes, let's try PFOS. Uh, you know, this was four or five years ago before PFOS was really in the news. He's like, if you, if, you, if you can get rid of PFOS, then you've got something there because this is an emerging contaminant that we really don't know how to get rid of. And we did experiments and we not only showed that we could capture the PFOS, but we found a way to energize our nanomaterials using UV energy, and it actually broke the bonds of the PFOS all the way down to CO2 gas and fluorine. So we found a way to not only pull this stuff out of water, but to destroy it at the same time, which is still relatively unheard of. And if you don't know what PFOS are or forever chemicals, they are in things uh, like uh, Teflons and other materials that are used to make things uh, waterproof. They're also in firefighting foams. They're in Teflon, a lot of textiles. They're, they're really everywhere. And they've been around probably since the forties. They don't go away. So even though people are exposed to just a little bit at a time over the years, they bioaccumulate. 
and they cause problems. They cause birth defects. They can cause cancer. There's a lot of, of, of a lot of bad things that happen. And just a few months ago, maybe even a few weeks ago, the EPA announced that they're going to get ready to start regulating this. So people are going to have to find a way to get rid of it. And today there's just really, there's not a good way to remove and destroy at the same time. And we've, we've actually, we, we've found a way to do that. Uh, we've proven it works and we're looking to, you know, get our first pilot uh, program installed at, at most likely a water treatment plant here in North Carolina. So um, that cell cycle, Steve, is likely going to be slow or going to be faster than the cell cycle of some of the other things that you're doing, right? I believe so. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is necessity. Um, uh, there's also a lot of optics. Like if you look at the town that that our facility is in, in Burlington, North Carolina, there's a river that runs through Burlington, the Haw River, and the Haw River is being polluted by the town of Burlington, they believe, by discharge of water from a, uh, a waste facility. Uh, there's PFAS getting dumped into the river, and they really can't figure out how to get rid of it. So if you look at that and, and with the press and, and the, the politics behind the water, people are very active to, to try something. And there's a lot of people that are willing to try something new if it, if it is demonstrated to solve the problem. And we have enough data, we have enough information, we've done enough uh, testing to show that it works. So there are people that are interested in, in implementing this. And there's a whole bunch of people behind those early adopters that are just waiting to see if it works. And if it works, then they're going to want to do it too. So um, it's a, it's a much, it's almost like a real-time qualification. So if you compare it to something like aerospace, which is going to take years or space, which is going to take years, when you're continuously running water through something and you're taking samples, you can immediately see if it works. So it is, um, it, it has a, a less, the threshold is lower from a data perspective and the need is higher from a, you know, for just the well-being, well-being of the people and the need for clean water. Yeah. Um, so knowing that, I mean, gosh knows, I mean, um, I sent you over that Wall Street Journal article about Stewart, Florida, we've got Wilmington, um, that's been in the news over the course of the last couple of years. You just highlighted Burlington. I mean, I've got to imagine that there's facilities all over or there's towns all over the country that are in similar situations, right? So how do y'all capitalize on that in the most efficient manner from a business perspective? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of studies out there and, and some of the, I'd say more of the alarming, the 83% of U.S. waterways that have been sampled have PFAS in them. Uh, it's estimated that close to 150 million people in the U.S. are exposed to dangerous levels. There's over 50,000 contaminated sites. Um, essentially, every every military base across the country has contamination. So this is it's a challenge. It's everywhere. It's in it's in the rainwater. It's been it's been found in the rainwater in the Australian outback. It's been found in Arctic ice. Um, there are articles. One of the 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 most disturbing to me was there's a there's a cattle farmer in Michigan that would get sludge from the wastewater treatment plant to use as fertilizer on his farm. And that fertilizer, that sludge was contaminated with PFAS at a high enough level that it contaminated his cows 
and he was forced to you know destroy some of his cattle because of these contaminations. So you're right, it's everywhere. But how do we do it as a small company? Well, we were very interested in also working in our own community. So knowing that Burlington, the town of Burlington, has this problem, which is where we are, we wanted to start there. And, you know, through kind of a grassroots effort, you know, we reached out to the city of Burlington. We had the mayor come visit. We had the city planners and managers come visit. We explained to them what we did. We met with our, you know, our, our North Carolina representatives. Uh, Representative Rydell from North Carolina has been a tremendous help to us, to getting us, um, giving us help and information and, and giving us ideas of how we can put together a, you know, a proposal to try to get funded. And with all of our local resources, um, that's where we're starting. And we're hopeful that, you know, we can start locally, which can help the town of Burlington. It can help the Hall River. It can help the people around us. And a North Carolina company solving a North Carolina problem that can literally help change the world. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, if, if we can, you know, make money doing what's right, and what we kind of believe is a conscious capitalism, that to us is really exciting. And um, we're very motivated and we've been spending a lot of time and a lot of effort uh, you know, to get a, get a first pilot initiated. That's awesome. So a separate division within the same company or how will that be treated? It, it was um, for for about the last nine months or so. And then we've made the strategic decision really just in the past few weeks that we're actually going to spin this out as its own company. And, uh, you know, we're going to do it in such a way um, we're following kind of what we did with BNNO. And when we started BNNO, it was it was literally funded by friends and family. It was by people that we knew. And and then we did a crowdfund. Um, BNNO was actually, I believe it was the uh, Will McGuire out of Encolo told us this, that we were actually the first North Carolina company to raise a million dollars crowdfunding. Yeah. So we've had a lot of success. And not only did we get investors that way, we ended up having a lot of people help us through the crowd. So we're going to kind of follow that that blueprint that we did. We're going to spin out this company, you know, 100% BNNO, um, 100% wholly owned. So if if you helped be a nano grow, you will automatically participate in this new organization, you know, but we're also going to, we're going to do a little bit of a crowdfund for this and, you know, humbly start this company like we did in the past to, to get to that first pilot. And then, you know, once we show it works, um, we, we think the, the growth opportunities are phenomenal. <clears throat> when did you do your crowdfund? We did our first crowdfund. Uh, Jeez, it was had to be. So we we won BN Nano. We were fortunate that we participated and we actually won the or we were the platinum award winners for the Pepperdine uh, Most Fundable Company competition. Huh. And after that is when we we bridged to get into the crowdfund. Part of the part of the folks at the uh, Pepperdine School were associated with the net capital portal for crowdfunding. So in 2020, when we won the most fundable competition, we were introduced to some of the crowdfunding folks. And um, so we launched our first one in, in 2020. Okay. And it was during that campaign that we raised a million. We did a small one last year, uh, just to kind of bridge so that we could actually do some of the work with um, some of the Palmers and Waters. Um, but we've raised a little over 1.25 million crowdfunding and okay. a little over two total. So to date, you know, BNN has about three and a quarter 
a million in as a company. And then we're looking to, you know, do a smaller raise for the water. We don't think we need as much to get this going. Okay. Um, and the water can be scalable and profitable, um, but you'll still, if it works, you'll raise more capital in the future to take um, to take it to the next level and roll it out to as many municipalities and um, treatment plants and everything else as you can. If we need to, um, some of the modeling that we have could suggest that the the way that the so if you look at if we we use there's a plant in Wilmington that we use as a baseline. They spend about forty million in capital to try to address PFOS. We will be a fraction of that cost to implement. So our implementation costs are not that high. Our capital costs are not that high. So we will initially try to self-fund it, right? I mean, our, our goal is to reward our investors and reward the team as much as possible. So we would like to maintain as much ownership as we can. So um, just like we're needs-based the way we run the company, we're also needs-based from an investment standpoint. Retrospectively, that's made for a lot of uh, stressful, sleepless nights because we've only raised money when we needed to. Yeah. But in the long term, I think it, it's 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 the right thing to do. Um, so if we need to, yes. But in a perfect world, this might be all we need to get this going. Yeah. So it's crazy to hear you say it. The water treatment plan and um Wilmington was $40 million to stand up. I think if I remember reading the Stewart, Florida project correctly, I think they've spent somewhere upwards of $100 million to try to clean up the um, the foam PFAS problem that they have down there. And so do you run into the problem of, as you're talking to folks, hey, look, we're spending $40 million and you're coming in here offering to do it at a fraction of the cost. There's no way that it can be done, right? Like, you have to spend more money to get a good result and you're coming in to say, no, we can actually do it. Do you run into that problem or do people say, um, Oh heck yes. <laughs> initially, they initially it's like, it sounds good to be true. Right. And then what we, what, but what we do is again, we go back to, you know, what we think, what we believe and what we know we're at the point now where we know it works. So we can systematically walk them through the technology, the data and, and show them that, it not only worked at this scale, but then we explain to them what we're doing, how we're piggybacking on existing technologies to implement it on the large scale. Once you have those conversations and you build that, you know, that trust relationship and have, you know, full disclosure questions back and forth, then it gets to the point where, okay, it makes sense. And there is a, there is a necessity and almost a desperation to try to solve this problem right now. And, and, and having that, necessity also kind of breaks down that not invented here barrier or the it wasn't my idea so I don't want to implement it uh, type of thinking so what we've actually what we found is people have been very receptive um, it's not a science project we know it works so you, you're not you're not funding an experiment it's actually a solution and you know we're we're even confident enough to do this so, you know, we'll, for like the first pilots, you know, we're, we'll cost share probably a significant portion just to show it works. We'll do whatever, we'll do whatever we need to do to get it started because it, it will help grow our business in the long term. but it's also just the right thing to do. Um, you know, I've got kids, I have friends with kids, you know, we, we've been in North Carolina our whole lives. Um, I've, I've had friends and family that have been on military bases that have gotten sick 
you know, some of them have passed away from some of the diseases they've got from the water and other things. So it's, it's, it's just the right thing to do. And, you know, we're prepared to support that in any way that we can. Just Steve, um, we are coming up on the end of our time, um, which, you know, as I said at the beginning of the call, it's always amazing how fast it happens. You've got an amazing, again, I've said it multiple times, so I feel bad about saying it, game-changing solution here in a lot of different ways. Um, when, When will you be able to stop looking over your shoulder and knowing that, um, that is being, it's gained the traction that it needs to do the things that it can do to, um, to make the world better. Yeah, I think part of just loving what we do and, and love finding new ways and and new things to do with our materials. We often don't kind of look back and see what we've done, if that makes sense. Um, a lot of before the water, a lot of the the things that we were working with are things that are more challenging to describe and explain. Um, so, yeah, if you if you can if you can make a a three D printed bulletproof vest that perfectly fits a soldier and can protect them, that's really cool for the few people that use it. But it's harder to feel like you've changed the world. Um, the water for us is sort of this this seminal moment or or this thing that we we've really we believe that this fundamentally can change the world right we really can get rid of this problem and i i think for me personally that will probably be the only time that we'll be able to sit back and have everyone understand and agree that it's not just cool it's not just that you know it's nano it's not just because you have a couple patents or because maybe you're a profitable company now but at that point, I think we'll be able to say we really made a difference. And if we can clean up, like Wilmington has, they have a big, they have a big problem there, right? If we can help a town like Wilmington or a town like Burlington or just any of these other, you know, smaller towns that one of the reasons they're not able to grow is because they have bad water, that would feel really good. And the rural communities in North Carolina, you know, they've, they've had hard times over the years as some of the old, other industries have left. And if we can, if we can do this by growing our business in small towns like Burlington, maybe even a town like Yanceyville or some of these smaller areas, that's when I think we'll finally be able to take a breath and say, we actually did some good. Yeah. So Steve, what's the best way for folks to reach out and help you out, right? So you've got a cool product. Um, you said earlier on in the conversation that relationships are what build the business, right? Yeah. Um, you've got a really cool technology, but relationships are, are, are what gets it over the finish line, so to speak. So um, what's the best way for, for folks to help be a nano? Um, how can people find out when you do go to the crowd, um, the crowdfund um, route, where will that be? Um, give folks a little bit of uh, an opportunity to help you do the things sure. that uh, we we know you can do. I, the easiest way is, you know, our website, you know, bnano.com, uh, general email info at bnano or just Steve at bnano will come to me directly. We, you know, we like to respond to everyone that contacts us. It may not always be that exact day, but, you know, we certainly will get back to you. And, you know, there we will certainly make an announcement on the BN Nano site that we're, you know, spinning out the, the new water company. And when we start the crowdfund, 
Um, that should be you know, right or probably right after the 4th of July is what we think our timing is going to be is going to be on that. So probably by the time this comes out, it'll be live. But we are, uh, you know, again, we we believe in relationships and people. And, and we've been very blessed and very fortunate that a lot of what we've been able to accomplish are because of the people that we've met and who those people have introduced us to. So we don't take any introduction for granted. We don't take any relationships for granted. And, uh, you know, we, we'd love to hear ideas from, from people. So, yeah, just reach out to us. Just Steve at BNNO.com will come right to me. And then I would say just keep an eye on the website. Um, you know, we are going to ramp up our social media presence. Uh, you know, LinkedIn, we'll start doing, uh, we, we've recently started on Twitter and, and some other things. But, you know, all of those, um, all that information is right there on our front page on, on the BNNO, BNNO.com. Well, I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed spending the last 50 minutes here with you, Steve, learning more um, more than I already knew about the company and your background and whatnot. Um, it's, at some point in time, we'll have to sit down and shoot the breeze and you can tell me about all the cool satellite stuff that's outside of um, um, out, outside of our sphere. Um, and yes, what sir, for sure. Yeah. So anyways, uh, congratulations on the traction so far. Um, you know, really, really cool stuff. And thanks for um, thanks for spending the time with us here today. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. We uh, we sincerely appreciate it. So thank you very much. Awesome. Have a good weekend. You too. Thank you. advisor representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.